Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. Apologies up front for the quality of this audio. Um, moving across the ocean and don't have my microphone with me. But that doesn't mean you can't enjoy this episode. So thanks for listening. Welcome to another OnScript episode. And this week I'm delighted to introduce to you my friend John Kincaid. He is Associate Professor of Theology and Administrative Chair for University-Wide Programs at the University of Mary, and that's Bismarck in North Dakota, and he has published articles in the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters, Letter and Spirit, and is the co-author of a book we'll be talking about today, Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology, which was published by Erdmans in 2019. He and his wife, Kristen, live in Bismarck with their children, Natalie, Jack, Evie, Olivia, Gabby, and Mary Grace. John is a dynamic and up-and-coming scholar who has piercing and important insights into Paul, and will be a key dialogue partner for many of us going forward, and for all of those interested in justification, faith, and such like. As I've said, full disclosure for this discussion, John is a friend of mine, and I've really enjoyed our meetups, annual meetups at the Society for Biblical Literature, SBL, and as well as on Zoom. Um, he really is electrifying when he gets talking about Paul. And so I thought it would be a good idea to get him onto on script and to light him loose. And what is more, we will also touch on areas of his research. So we're going to be ahead, even of the cutting edge, so to speak, eavesdropping on discussions that will shape future discussion. So welcome to On Script, John. Oh, it's great to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, perhaps you could just begin by telling us something about your background and your theological influences. Yeah, I have a quite diverse background. Uh, I really became interested in theology when I was an undergrad. Um, Previous to pursuing theology as uh, my basically my life's work, I was a baseball player in high school and college. And in fact, at the University of Delaware, I played baseball for the first couple years. And by the my sophomore junior season of playing baseball my love for theology was overcoming my love for baseball. And in fact, on a road trip, once I took some theological books with me and my teammates gave me endless grief about it on the, on the bus ride. And then it dawned on me, I'd rather be doing this than playing baseball as much as I love baseball. And so at that point I decided to transfer and uh, study theology formally. Uh, I was thinking about going to Wheaton to transfer. Uh, I missed the transfer deadline because I was an immature uh, young man. And it ended up in God's providence uh, as a good thing because uh, I ended up going to Geneva College outside my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I met uh, my wife and uh, really cut my teeth theologically uh, doing undergrad and biblical studies. And then from there, I went on to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis and developed uh, a number of interesting passions. Uh, one, it became clear, some of my professors said to me, it looks like the academy is more in your future than pastoral work, which I took as a compliment, I think. Uh, that is, they, 
your mind is in uh, the things of theology, not that you're not you know, a personable <laughs> a human being, which I, I, I took it in the positive sense. And, and I was really becoming passionate at that time about the intersection between exegesis and, and the history of interpretation. Right. Something we'll be coming back to. We yeah. will. That's right. And it, it seemed like to me at the time, and again, I was fairly early in my studies, that you almost had to choose between those two. You were either going to do New Testament or you were going to do something more theological. And, and that was troubling to me. And so I, I, after Covenant, I wanted to get to the bottom of that problem. And so I uh, went to Duke University to get a second master's because I thought in the Protestant world, there's no better place to ask those questions, particularly the time when I did it than Duke. And what was interesting when I was at Duke, I didn't really focus as much on the New Testament side as I did the theological side. Um, and my mentor at Duke, Reinhard Huter, was my uh, thesis director. And a lot of the questions I asked were more on the theological side. But also during my time at Duke, I developed a close friendship with Nathan Eubank. And Nathan and I wrestled with uh, almost like different sides of, of the challenge of the place of scripture and particularly exegesis in the history of, of interpretation. And so that lit a fire under me. And during my time at Duke, it, Reinhardt suggested to me a good place to go do this for doctoral work was Ave Maria. Uh, and he sent me there to study with two people uh, with this in mind. Uh, the first is Matthew Levering. Uh, and the second is Mikhail Waldstein. And those were the two kind of leading lights for me as, as going there. And, and actually at Ave, Matt was only there for another year. Uh, and so it was really Mikhail who is my doctor father and, and Mikhail, a lot of people, maybe your some listeners don't know him. He, um, uh, he actually has two doctorates. His first is from the university of Dallas in philosophy, uh, and particularly looks at Balthasar's thought, uh, and then did his, uh, THD at Harvard under Helmut Kirster, uh, working on John and was at Notre Dame for quite some time. And then what went, was asked by John Paul II to start the international theological Institute, in Austria. And after he did that, after a decade, he wanted to come back to the States and Ave Maria recruited him. So his life's work has been at this intersection of exegesis and reception history and theology. It's something that has been passionate for him because he doesn't see it as a choice, you know, between uh, doing close reading of texts and deep theological reflection. So I was really privileged to be able to sit under Mikhail as well as uh, under Matthew, who remains a close friend and uh, that has kind of germinated my work from there. I see. I see. Um, well, th th there are quite a few influences there, as you say, then. Um, stretching across a spectrum. Of very ecumenical. Yeah, very ecumenical. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, what drew you then ultimately to, to Paul? And we'll be talking a little bit about um, your wrestling with Paul, particularly uh, your chapter in, in the book, Paul, A New Covenant Jew. Rethinking Pauline Theology, which you co-authored with Brant Pitry, Michael, and Michael Barber. Um, but uh, perhaps you could just give us a little bit of that story. So from, from the very get-go, from my time even from Covenant on, Paul has uh, been a passion of mine. And so there's a couple ways into this. One is, during my time at Covenant, I became friends with Kyle Wells, who's a student of John Barclay, wrote a very fine dissertation under John on grace and agency, uh, 
in, in Paul and his context. And Kyle and I were roommates at a conference. And we spent most of the nights at this conference. It was actually a youth ministry conference talking about uh, where is boasting in conversation with Tom Wright. And we would go, you know, this, this question about initial justification and final judgment by works and, and how does that, how is that quandary able to be addressed? And it was a time of this, those questions, because this was now uh, over 15 years ago, those questions were really hot button. And they raised so many interesting issues about grace and agency and how the economy of salvation for Paul works, including for justification, that it was something that I said, I, I really want to look into this. And Kyle himself did his doctoral work on that. And then from there, during my time both at Duke and Ave Maria, my love for Paul not only grew, but I, it became increasingly apparent to me that uh, you could really look at the history of theology as footnotes on Paul. Almost every conceivable major debate and issue, while it's not exclusively in Paul, in as much as you could look to a lot of other areas, Paul is ground zero for almost any serious theological question. So it, Paul is the place to turn if you don't want to choose between rigorous exegesis and close theological reflection. And you could pick, pick the issue. And there's Paul, right? And and it became increasingly clear, you know, obviously the Reformation, you haven't say, well, that's obvious, but you look at patristic and medieval theology as well, he's the apostle, you know, and it's not Peter, he's the apostle. And my close uh, love and affiliation with both Augustine and Aquinas too, it became clear that um, for them, Paul is, if not the primary, he is the primary apostle in the sense of as theologian. And that love only then grew. And so I, I said, you know, working in Paul allows for the fullness of close and serious theological reflection. So you've, you've given us a little bit of that story of what drew you to Paul. Perhaps you, could, perhaps you could tell us what you think is the most important thing to get right when reading Paul. Because as you have explained, Paul is so important in uh, the history of the church uh, through the major figures across the doctrinal uh, suite of of uh, positions. So, what what do you think is the most important thing to get right when you're reading Paul? Well, I think the real ground zero issue for getting Paul right, particularly as it relates to the history of interpretation as well as the current state of the question, is getting right the relationship between divine and human agency. You know, the question is not just for justification, but for participation in Christ post Sanders. I mean, it really all depending on what you're looking at, how God's action in Christ relates to then any kind of human response, understanding that rightly is the ground zero because then both justification, participation as a whole, Pauline soteriology is either unlocked and cohesive or it becomes more fragmented and, and more difficult to relate to. And I would suggest that seeing it in Paul, which I think is right as non-competitive, through grace, Divine and human agency is ultimately, for Paul, non-competitive. And in fact, through divine agency, human agency is genuinely possible in a way where it doesn't allow for boasting in as much as apart from the gift. But through the grace that we are, those who believe in Christ, and for Paul, those who are in Christ, are empowered to do the very things that discipleship constitutes. So if that is able to be seen rightly as non-competitive, then a lot of the challenges in reading Paul, not obviously all of them, but many of the challenges, uh, I think, can be further clarified. Perhaps we can come back to this issue a little bit later on when we're discussing 
um, your chapter in Paul, A New Covenant Jew, um, because I, I couldn't agree more. I think we're on to something really important. I love the way you phrase it, ground zero. I think it is ground zero, um, yeah. Um, so when you look at the current scene of Pauline scholarship and admire its grand variety and different approaches, what most excites you at the moment out there in Pauline scholarship? Any particular traditions or themes or schools of thought? Yeah, I'm ex- there's a lot of exciting uh, work. I'm, one of the easiest, and it's exciting for many, uh, I'm a big fan of John Barclay's poem, The Gift, it, precisely in light of the things I just said about uh, grace and agency. And, and I think there's a lot there as a regards to reception history, because uh, one of my areas of you know, I'm particularly excited about is s- seeing some of the fruit of accounting for Greece as non-competitive in patristic and medieval reception. That's there, and, and there are an important precedence in Reformation tradition. So understanding the way grace can be transformative and empowering, I think that's a very fruitful avenue. I'm also excited about uh, the work of a number of scholars who kind of fall outside uh, the various taxonomies of old and new or apocalyptic. And there's great work being done in all of those. Um, but I've become uh, good friends over the years with Ben Blackwell. I think what Ben is attempting to do uh, by reading Paul in light of patristic reception, I think it's particularly fruitful. It was something Richard Hayes suggested years ago that would be a fruitful avenue and a festrif for for Ed Sanders, where he said, if we're going to unpack real participation, it'd be helpful to look at some of the Eastern reception. And Ben has run with that, I think, very helpfully. And, and I, so I, in one sense, uh, the where could things go in a fruitful direction going forward is, I, I think, one seat at the table that uh, hasn't been occupied <laughs> as much as the others is what I have called in the past the ancient perspective on Paul. And it's something that I want to work on. That is uh, pre-Reformation readers that are uh, variegated, diverse, but nonetheless uh, bring a lot to the table. And somebody like Ben has done a lot of work with that. But Morna Hooker had been suggesting this long before Ben because she gives it basically an Irenaean uh, reading of Paul, which I think is fundamentally right. Well, there's so much that we can unpack already here. Recapitulation theology and how that relates to Paul would be so much fun. Um, But perhaps we could go straight to your chapter in um, Paul, A New Covenant Jew. So this is from the foreword, which was written by Michael Gorman. He says, The unique book you're about to read interprets Paul within at least three significant contexts. The Jewish world of the first century, the world of ecumenical and interfaith biblical scholarship, and the world of Roman Catholic faith and practice. And indeed, um, I think anyone who picks up this book is going to find goldmine of uh, persuasive, engaging, provocative, new approaches to tangled subjects. It was an awful lot of fun. And your chapter um, touches on some really important themes as well. And perhaps you could say a little bit about what were your key aims in that chapter. This is chapter five, New Covenant Justification Through Divine Sonship. And um, what were you hoping to bring to the table, given the suite of different options for untangling Paul, justification and faith and all of that? Yeah, that's a great question. Let me just also state up front, um, the book is so genuinely co-written that while each of us kind of ran with sections, we also then 
wrote other parts of it as well. So real Brandon and Michael are, are partners in this chapter, although you're right. I mean, I, I did kind of own this one and, but they, their fingerprints are all over it. So what were we trying to do? Well, it justification, if there, we already talked about ground zero, there's ground zero and ground zero. And it seems that it's justification because in one sense, for all of the positive developments that have happened post EP Sanders, justification is still one where for all of the kind of, we can agree that participation in Christ is central justification still is a fault line. And it, I think it's still where the rubber meets the road, but that doesn't mean there, there can't be a lot of agreement. So where is it where the real fault lines lie? And I think what are we were getting at is what does it mean right, that one is justified and particularly in relationship to what is saving righteousness, you know, the quintessential, what's the saving righteousness of God? How does that relate to saving faith? And now how does that relate to justification in the final judgment? Those seem to be really touch points, right, or, or, or ground zero for this question. And what we attempted to argue, uh, in, in short, in the heart of the argument, no pun intended, is that we're suggesting that Paul's account of justification could be characterized as justification of the heart. And the righteousness that that would entail is a cardiac righteousness, and it fits with the theme of the book in as much as we're saying Paul is properly understood as a new covenant Jew. And if you look at the sweep of kind of particularly the text from Israel scriptures that are ruminating in Paul's mind, I think it's pretty clear. One of them is Jeremiah 31. It's not the only one, but it's certainly prominent as well as Ezekiel 36 and 37, Deuteronomy 38, and Romans, he already alludes to those, particularly in Romans 2, when he alludes to circumcision of the heart. So we know that those are important in Paul's thinking. So what bearing does that potentially have on justification? Right? Does that help in justification? And we argue it does. And what's interesting about that is like, well, is there anywhere in Paul where Paul brings this all together? And we argue one place is 2 Corinthians 3, because there Paul's talking about the, the distinction between not just letter and spirit, but being under the Mosaic covenant and the law and the kind of quintessential dialectic that exists in the justification debates and the spirit. But he doesn't just leave it at the spirit. He talks about being written on tablets of human hearts. And sometimes you would think, particularly in light of some of these debates, people might expect sanctification to be in view. But sanctification language does not appear in the passage. What does is dikaiosune, justification. And so actually the NRSV translates it justification, which is probably not a good translation. But I, I, I would suggest nonetheless that the logic is there. That is, in, in 3.9, he talks about the ministry of condemnation is juxtaposed with the ministry of righteousness. And I think the argument could be had there, and, and it is, I think, a good one, that uh, justification for Paul there entails uh, God writing on the heart through Christ, such that you could call it a cardiac righteousness. And if this was the only passage in Paul where you could connect these dots, maybe that's a bit forced. But there's another one we allude to, and that is Romans, Romans 10, where, again, against the backdrop of Deuteronomy 30, Paul gets into a discussion about in what way should we submit to God's righteousness? And then he goes on to say, if you believe in the heart into righteousness. And I think one could adequately say that when one has genuine Pauline faith, uh, it could be called cardiac righteousness. And the explanatory power of that is helpful. 
Uh, one is it fits with a new covenant account. Two, it's particularly interesting, is that in Romans 2, at least in uh, in his overview, as well as in 1 Corinthians uh, 4, the heart is what's judged. So now the, the quandary between initial and final justification may have a, something like a what you might call a middle term. That is, maybe the quandary between initial and final justification can be addressed because cardiac righteousness is that which is both initially justifying and that which you'll be judged by. Fantastic. So you're bringing in, this is a, a phrase you use throughout the chapter, isn't it? Cardiac righteousness. Maybe worthwhile just um, slowing down for a moment and looking at Second Corinthians chapter 3 and the, the passages that you were... Um, you were mentioning, which really kicked off uh, your summary there, where Paul famously writes that you yourselves are our letter written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is the NRSV. And, you know, there's some debates about translation here and there. But anyway, this, passing all of that, uh, and then on to verse 9, which you mentioned. Um, I've just read out chapter, uh, verses 2 and 3, then verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the, and this is the ministry of justification, abound in glory. Um, so there you have exactly what you are pulling out, that kind of language, the cardiac righteousness. And you also, didn't you, you went to Romans chapter 10, where the language of heart is linked to righteousness and faith, you know, verse 5, uh, concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, verse 6, the righteousness that comes from faith, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, and so on. And then, of course, verse 9, famously, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, for one believes with the heart, and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. Now, maybe you could say something about the primary, um, that, that a different way of reading the text that you're hoping to overcome. Is is there a particular reading that you're hoping to subvert or supplant? I I think yes, and but with uh, kind of a particular nuance. I think that one challenge and I think it is one of the important debates, is, um, is the saving righteousness of God in justification? Is it exclusively extrinsic? That is, does it come only from the outside? And I think what we want to, and I think there is a strong case to be made that it is extrinsic. And that, it, because, you know, 1 Corinthians one thirty, Christ is our righteousness. So it's not a question of whether, there's an element of, of truth to that. The question is, is that the whole story? And in, in, in particular, in relationship to justification. So what we want to argue, and we do argue, is that even though it's, you could say, alien in source, it's not alien in destination, right? That it actually becomes resident, you know, um, and it's a gift that becomes ours while still a gift. And sometimes people get Concern that that means that is this some infused substance or is this something you know where, and but I, I think Paul's own language helps rectify that. He's speaking of the heart and the very core of the person in a very Jewish way that would fit with the expectations 
of what would happen in the new covenant. So the person becomes righteous because they have true faith. And that faith really is cardiac righteousness. And so what we're looking to overcome is an exclusively extrinsic account of Pauline justification that could be called in the end counterfactual. That is that really what's happening is not real. It's true and real for Christ, but not necessarily for the believer. And I, what we want to argue is on the whole, Pauline justification is while by grace, the product is realistic. And even his use of the verb dikaiao is itself realistic. That is, there's a new reality that by grace through faith has been brought to bear. Right. So you're really pressing, aren't you, on a on one of those uh, famous knots in Pauline scholarship when it comes to justification and faith, imputation, and uh, the juridical notion of of being declared righteous, and on the other hand, um, views which want to press, as you put it, more realistic approaches. Sometimes the language of infusion might be used or made righteous. And you're picking up on this by focusing on uh, the cardiac nature of righteousness language in Pauline discourse. Maybe you could then, could you define for us justification on the one hand um, uh, and maybe um, faith on the other? You know, if you've got off the top of sure. your head, it's a bit and unfair. I, I, but... I think you could say that justification is by faith. And if you want to talk about righteousness, faith is righteousness. In as much as this, if you have a robust account of Pauline faith, that is, yes, there's content believed, and yes, there's trust, but it's also allegiance or obedience. You know, I know Matthew Bates has made this argument, but lots of Pauline scholars note that Pauline faith is is a radical, all-encompassing commitment of the person. So that you really, that really, you really are righteous when you have faith. And and the way I would then define it is conformity to the character of Christ. And for many, they're going to want to separate justification from sanctification. And, um, and to the extent that we don't do that, you know, you know full well, some will say then the gospel is being undermined. Yeah, that's a big debate, and isn't you, it? <laughs> you, it is a big debate. Yeah. And you do tackle this um, in, in your chapter. Um, maybe you could speak to that a little bit, the relationship between justification and sanctification. Sure, yeah, and that's a huge question, and I think that they truly are distinct, and so I think it's important to say that they're not exactly the same thing. But a, a lot of times in coming from more Reformed traditions, and again, it, it, it's a there is some different relationship even between Lutheran traditions and more Calvinist tradition, but in, particularly in the more Calvinist tradition, justification is juridical, and therefore, and, and again, we argue that it's juridical. But by juridical, in that sense, has meant an exclusively extrinsic imputation of Christ's righteousness received by faith. Um, and then sanctification is the moral renewal of the person. And then the, the accusation against others, Calvin made it against Oziander, but it was made across time and space, is that therefore, you know, you're making justification what really is sanctification. Well, I, I think it's a bit of... Uh, a category confusion at that point, in as much as I don't think it's a question of whether justification or sanctification are moral. I think they're both moral. And in fact, if you look at the language of both the Hebrew and the Greek, and many scholars have shown this, it's really hard to say that justification language isn't about morality. Uh, and, and so really, it's 
just here's how I would distinguish them and argue that in light of that. Justification is about one's character with a forensic teleology to it or end in view, whereas sanctification is cultic. That is, hagias, hagiasune, those terms are related to one standing in worship. And those are genuinely really distinguishable and I think defensible in regards to actually tracing Takayo language and ascetic, setika in the Hebrew side, and then distinguishing that from hagias, hagiasune on the other side. So if a close reading of the actual words, I think what you would find is it's, the, the, it's a false choice to say one's moral and one isn't. I think that the right distinction is between one is ordered to a forensic context and the other is ordered to a cultic context, but both are moral. Mm. Perhaps this will this will come back to what you called the ground zero issue at the beginning. Um, how could you speak to someone's concerns that this is going to turn the gospel into uh, sort of a moralistic? self-help, you know, panic-stricken, I better pull up my moral bootstraps kind of uh, uh, message. How, how do you speak to that concern? Well, uh, I, I would kind of take the track of Augustine in as much as uh, Augustine addressing uh, the Pelagian controversy had to address this directly. And Augustine's argument is pretty elegant, and that is uh, grace is that which empowers the entire world process of salvation, including justification. And it's not as if anybody, according to Paul, could boast apart from grace. And even more broadly, 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? You know, everything, everything for Paul is a gift. So it is the ground zero issue. That is, for justification, it is not about one's self-effort apart from grace. It's entirely a gift, 100% a gift. But it's also 100% our own. And I think there's deep Trinitarian issues here, too, not just to mention divine human agency. If you see the person of the Son as someone who is entirely receives everything from the Father, his whole existence is, in one sense, gift. But it's eternally been that way. He receives everything that he is from the Father. If, that's, if, if that means that gift is then somehow not ours, then the Son has never existed. Everything he is is a gift. But that doesn't mean that everything that he is and does isn't through the Father. And so, by extension, I think you could say, those who are adopted and made members of the Son, are empowered in, as, in the same kind of non-competitive account. That is, everything they have is a gift, but that gift empowers their agency. And, and I kind of would push back on the more historically reformed accounts by saying, if you can have a non-competitive account of divine and human agency and sanctification, why not in justification? I'd love to spend more time talking about these, but I did want to move on, because one of the reasons I, I got you onto this um, podcast is to talk about some of your forthcoming work and that which you're working on at the moment um, because I've very much enjoyed sitting down with you and and hearing about your projects and where you're hoping to go um, and perhaps we could just think about one at, you know, at the moment we tend to don't we um, it, with broad oversimplifications 
classify different schools, like there's old perspective here and new perspective there and pull within Judaism there and apocalyptic readings over here. Um, how do you think it's best to classify different schools uh, of Pauline scholarship, or at least how do you think we should move forward in terms of these labels? Yeah, that, that's a very difficult question because it, it all depends on what aspect you're looking at it under, right? So it, you could see a lot of the schools agreeing on the importance of participation. Almost all of them will. But then what does that mean? Right? And so if you look at it in relationship to justification, you could see real agreement between those in the new and the apocalyptic, maybe and many in the old would, would hesitate. But then even within the old, I think one of the the misnomers in some of my future work, I, I hope to show this. One of I think the misunderstanding is that the old perspective is far from monolithic. Um, often people think old perspective; they think a particular strain of Calvinism. But I think if you look at certain Lutheran readings, as well as Wesleyan readings on justification as well as participation, they're quite different than some of the Calvinistic readings. So the assumption, as if well, the old perspective is is just X. Uh, I, I think is is fundamentally inaccurate. Um, you know, a Lutheran account is is quite sacramental. Uh, it, it has justification not as exclusively extrinsic normally. Uh, even Melanchthon himself uh, at times argued such ways. Um, and so, it, uh, I, I think the you know the origin of an exclusively extrinsic righteousness some scholars have suggested really is with Calvin. Um, more than Luther and Melanchthon. And then Wesleyan readings depart from that pretty strongly on the whole, as it is anyway, driving from Wesley. And so, you know, would they all be adequately called the old perspective? I mean, I think that needs to be reconsidered. And how that relates to something I'm going to work on, I hope, in the coming years and uh, is what I call the ancient perspective. I think such a thing exists. As diverse as patristic and medieval reception is, there are some unifying points in the ancient perspective that give it a cohesive view. And in many ways, it's what some of the reformers were departing from. And I think it's far more defensible than is often given uh, credit for. Great. So ancient perspective, I think, is probably a term we're going to be using a good deal more, certainly if we're engaging um, with your work. What other arguments are, are in the works uh, what are you planning to develop in, in the next few years so that we're even ahead of the cutting edge? Well, so the, the book I'm working on now, I just started very early, is taking chapter five and expanding on it. Uh, the tentative title is Paul and Justification of the Heart. That, that's chapter five in Paul and New that, Covenant Jew. That's correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So chapter five in Paul and New Covenant Jew, the chapter on justification. That chapter that we were just discussing earlier, I want to expand on it because, again, in a book like Paul and New Covenant Jew, it, it's meant to be an overview of Pauline theology. So there's a lot that we just couldn't get into uh, in that chapter. So I'm working now just at the beginning on a monograph that looks to develop these arguments throughout the entire Pauline corpus and see if they work. Because, again, you have to really give close reading to the texts and, and, and the issues at stake. And so... In this work that's preliminary, is some of the thoughts I've already shared, but putting on some touch points, really focusing on what I suggest are four main things that kind of flesh this out in Paul. What's the relationship between atonement and justification, number one? Number two is what's justifying faith. Uh, three, what righteousness results from that? And then four, 
what's the relationship between initial and final justification. Now, I want to cover the major text in Paul where these things are at stake, so it's going to go more close reading of text versus kind of flying at 30,000 feet like we did in Paul New Covenant 2. Uh, so that is what I'm working on right now in its, in its nascent stages. Uh, and then uh, another project uh, is one where, where I'm very excited. We just finalized the deal is uh, a series that I'm one of the managing editors for called Lexio Sacra. Uh, I'm one of the managing editors with Ben Blackwell and Jim Prothrow, where the vision of the series is precisely to foster the integration of exegesis and reception history. Um, and it's not that every book in this series that we're looking to solicit has to do all of that. But what, it, what we're looking for is exegesis that's open to the whole, that is able to say, look, we're going to read the text closely, but in a way that isn't fragmented. Right? So if it's specialized, it's not fragmented. And it's open to the, uh, in a certain sense, you could say a fuller reading of the text that is warranted by the text itself. And the title of the series itself Lexio Sacra gives a clue to that, right? It's close reading, but it's holy reading. It's reading done in light of there's been a long and storied and rich history of this in Christianity. And we want to model what that looks like to do so in an integrated fashion and welcoming monographs that are attempting to, to model what that looks like. Brilliant. Now, um, I want to come back to that series in a moment, but but first... Um, so one of the things that we do on OnScript is a quick fire round where we ask you to respond to some rather random questions, uh, but just off the cuff without thinking about it too much, hopefully give us some insight into what's really going on uh, with John Kincaid. So the first question for you is chess, and you know I love chess, right? Chess or some random American sport like baseball? Oh my gosh, that's tough because I love chess, but I would say baseball. I love chess though. Oh, this is awkward. Though. I'm sorry. Oh, oh dear. Baseball is my, uh, my passion, but I, I play chess almost daily, so it's that it seems like that feels like a false choice. But uh, I did not know that yeah. you play chess daily. Yeah. We'll have to connect online. We should. Uh, when was the last te- time your favorite team won the World Series? 1979, Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, I- I hear from a, a mutual friend that uh, your favorite team are which are again? the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, I hear they're not too good. Is that is that is that correct? Well, it's it's painful. Uh, yes, uh, they they actually were beginning to get their act together uh, a few years back, but um, I think we're heading back in the wrong direction. So now, can you can you guess who gave me that insight? Michael Barber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, not fair. I, that's that's I, not fair. <laughs> yeah. I hear you eat chicken chicken every day for lunch. That's correct. So why are you set on decimating the chicken population? I mean, why do you hate chicken so much? It's that I love the chicken, and I I I have a close affinity for the chicken. But here's the thing: it really helps me think better. I found that you know when I was. I would find, why do I work better some afternoons versus others? And there's something about chicken that it just is right for my ability to focus. I think there's a book in this, The Chicken Diet or, That's or right. some such. Chicken Scholarship, gu- yeah. <laughs> chicken Research. Yeah. Guide for Biblical Scholarship. Yeah. So what, what do you say or what do you prefer to say? Coronavirus, Wuhan flu or COVID-19? Coronavirus. 
Pope Benedict XVI or Pope Francis? Pope Benedict XVI. Okay, cereals now. Reese Puffs or Pope Tarts? Reese. Your favourite papal encyclical? Uh, wow, that's a tough... Uh, Deus Caritas Est. Stay in for the night reading a novel or Pope outside for a walk? I'm sorry, these Pope jokes are lame. Uh, they're, they're, they're fair game. I'll take a walk. That will be it. Is that a way to just avoid it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Okay, back to uh, the last couple of questions that I wanted to um, uh, discuss with you. Um, just to pick up on something that you finished with when you're talking about your future work. You suggested that going forward, we need to think about justification and faith and such like by coordinating the discussions uh, a little bit differently. You had four particular questions. Could you just remind us of those again? Sure. It seems to me for justification, but I think they're also wider, but for justification, the touch points, or you might call them, uh, you know, kind of uh, ground zero kind of points would be first the relationship between uh, justification and atonement. What's the relationship there? Then second, what kind of faith for Paul is justifying? Uh, third is, what righteousness results from that kind of faith, that kind of atonement? Right. So they kind of build. And then the fourth is then, after you've kind of uh, tried to give a best answer to those three, then how do you account for justification and the final judgment by works, or sometimes called initial and final justification? If I, I think if you can answer the first three pretty cohesively, the fourth can follow. If the first three aren't as cohesive, the fourth is going to be a lot more problematic. Right. And so this is going to help you map the history of engagement with Paul on these matters alternatively as well. So you're not just talking about old perspective, new perspective, and so on. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And so my, my long-term project after this that book, where tracing those four, uh, is to look at that in reception. And how that might give a, a bit of a fresher, different look at some of the historic fault lines in Pauline interpretation. Now back to Lectio Sacra, which you began to tell us all about just before the quick fire round. And um, you've explained some of the goals of, of the series and, and what you hope it's going to achieve and the integration of exegesis and reception history and such like. But maybe you could speak into that a little bit. Why do you think it's so important that Bible exegesis engage with reception history, with uh, the history of engagement with text? You know, why not just pick up a Bible and understand it in terms of, this is caveman stuff, in terms of Paul's background, you know, and never mind how people have been reading it for the last 2,000 years. Why focus on reception history? What problems do you think it solves bringing that into the table? Uh, and what do you hope to achieve with that? Uh, that's a great question. I, a number of things. I, first, I think we would say in this series, we do want to read Paul in context. So, and not just Paul, but all of Scripture. So it's reading Scripture, one way we've put it before, Jim, Ben, and I, is we're reading Scripture uh, as an ancient text and with ancient readers. And it's both, because the, particularly those who have read the, the text throughout the ages have had not just great insights, but some of them are more proximate to the original uh, constitution of those texts than we are. So their insights will 
oftentimes, and I, I, you can come up with specific examples of this, allow a further penetration. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but they help the reader when understood rightly to be able to get more out of the text versus just coming to it almost like a blank slate. Because, you know, one of the things, one of my favorite sayings of a number of theologians is, you know, if you have an entirely new idea, it's likely wrong, right? It, the idea that for somehow that this hasn't been thought of before over the last 2000 years, and even when it's been suggested, really smart people have said, oh, I like that, but here's a problem with that. There, there's a process of sharpening that happens, and it's not just, uh, you know, kind of regressive as it's often been seen, like a history of rupture. It's also a history of genuine development that allows you to understand the text better. And I think that there's this, you know, the, the, the modern notion that comes from almost like from Spinoza on where, you know, close reading of texts should be seen as antithetical to theology, I think is a problematic rift that while at times theologians have read texts poorly or tried to shoehorn certain readings into texts, that doesn't invalidate all of it. And in particular, what kind of texts are we talking about? You know, the texts we're talking about are theological. So talk about importing foreign lenses. If you're saying, you know, if you want to have hermeneutical sympathy with the text, think these are serious texts and, and the authors themselves were attempting to say theological things. But when I interpret them, I can't actually use theology. That sounds like nonsense. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, one of one of the issues close to my heart relates to this, particularly the definition of what one means by apocalyptic when it comes to understanding Paul. And, and usually you'll find scholars say, well, either we've got to understand apocalyptic in terms of some you know, second temple worldview or literature or some such, or it's a theological definition. Um, but the thing is, Paul used the term uh, in a theological way. Um, and so it's not as if we have to choose. Um, but anyway, um, perhaps to finish, this is a broad, open-ended question, really. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What is the most important thing you would pass on to us for engaging and studying the Bible? Well, it's a, it, I've actually got this question from my students at the University of Mary, where I am a professor of theology. And so I, I will kind of give the answer that I give my students. They say, well, what should I do if I really want to read it, the text well? And I, I love the image, and multiple scholars have used this, as seeing Scripture as an icon. And, you know, to see an icon of Jesus, you want to pay close attention to the beauty uh, of the person you're looking at. You're not going to be irresponsible or reckless, but at the same time, you're going to gaze and want to really appropriate and see and be transformed by the gaze. And... Um, one of the texts in Paul that I come to for this is 2 Corinthians 3, but not the beginning, but the end. We all beholding the glory of the Lord as in the mirror are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. By beholding the glory of Christ in the pages of sacred scripture, we are transformed. And that transformation is not one of mere piety. That is as if we, we check our brains at the door. But the more we really come to know the text with close attention, close reading, it actually leads to a transformation because we're beholding the glory of the Lord in the pages we look at. A great way to win. Thank you so much. Chris, it's a um, pleasure. Coming on to OneScript. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be with you as always. Yeah, thank you for having me. You have been listening to OnScript. 
delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.